This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, the red tide of 2020 was an extraordinary expression of nature. It was beautiful. It was formidable. And unfortunately, it was pretty nauseating at times. For me, someone who studied bioluminescence my entire career, it was spectacular to see it like this. Normally, we study bioluminescence in the laboratory under controlled experimental conditions. But to see it in nature like this is really one of the special things that I've experienced. But there's a lot more to this red tide than just a pretty light show. So I just want to start with the basics. And that's plankton. Plankton are the microscopic organisms in the ocean that are extremely numerous. And they form the base of the food chain. So the phytoplankton are photosynthetic. They harvest the energy of the sun to grow. And the phytoplankton are fed on by other plankton that are fed on by other organisms, animals, all the way up the food chain. But the phytoplankton are the base of the food chain. And sometimes they can get very abundant. So when we have a red tide, it's because the plankton are so abundant that they change discolor the water. Red tides can be brown, is such as what we have here locally, San Diego. They can be red, they can be orange, but they all are due to a dense accumulation of plankton. And our red tide in 2020 was spectacular for how brown the water got. And with that came the bioluminescence. So of course, you have to go out at night to see it, and the darker the beach, the better. But imagine going out and imagine for all you surfers out there, imagine surfing in this, in this light. It's a very special thing to do. So just like you'd normally do, be doing during the day, you paddle out and you catch a wave. So as the wave breaks, there's this neon blue light shooting through the wave and you get to ride all that light. So let's catch another wave. And these are all filmed from the Scripps Pier. So we get a nice angle. Here in the foreground, there are some fish that were swimming that were stimulating the bioluminescence. So let's paddle, paddle out, catch another wave. So you notice how just agitation of the water is stimulating the light. So we'll catch one more wave. Here we go. And it's actually two surfers on the same wave. So thank you surfers for such nice display of the bioluminescence. And thank you, John Moore, for capturing this incredible view. 
during the red tide, here's a romantic couple on the beach with the bioluminescence and the waves, the moon setting, and a meteor streaking through the sky. The, John called this a lucky shot, but the fact that he was out there at 3 a.m. means that he's he knew exactly what he was doing, just waiting for that right moment. So this is part of the beauty of the red tide. And there's also the not so beautiful part. When the red tide started breaking down, there was a lot of foam on the beach. And I had to go check it out. So I went at night to Scripps. A lot of foam, a lot of people on the beach checking it out. But the foam, I was all over and I wondered, well, what's the effect on the bioluminescence? Is it still as bright? So if we compare the upper panel, which is during the peak of the red tide, with the bright bioluminescence, to the lower panel, which is when the foam started appearing, you'll notice that the bioluminescence was much dimmer, but it, it still persisted and actually persisted through the entire phase with the foam. So what is this foam? Well, it's exactly like you're whipping up egg whites. So there's protein in the water, and the, there are bubbles form when the waves break, and these bubbles are coated by the proteins in the water, stabilizing the bubbles. So essentially, this is the ocean equivalent of beating egg whites. So unfortunately, with the foam came the smell. And the media had a field day with these headlines, such as, Neon blue flash gives way to rotting stench as red tide sweeps California coast. Red tide causes big stink along local beaches. And thank you, 10 News, for a little nicer headline. Red tide creates strong odor along San Diego's coast. So what is this odor about? It means that the red tide is decaying. The organisms are dying. There's microbes, bacteria, and other microbes that are feasting off the decaying material. They're producing compounds that produce an odor, and then they're feasted on by other bacteria like sulfur-producing bacteria that themselves produce other odors, including hydrogen sulfide, giving us that rotten egg smell. So certainly... The odor was noticeable by everyone living along the entire coastline and inland a few miles. It was very pervasive. But the big question was, when will the stink from the red tide go away? It lasted a couple of weeks, a lot longer than we thought it would. One interesting thing about when the red tide was decaying is there was a big drop in oxygen levels in the water. So this graph shows levels of dissolved oxygen in the water. It's measured from an instrument on the Scripps Pier run by my colleagues at Scripps. And it shows oxygen levels pretty steady before the red tide. And then when you get into the red tide, there are these big spikes because during the day, the organisms that are abundant are photosynthetic. They're producing oxygen as a result of photosynthesis. And then at night, they respire and they're using up oxygen. But when the red tide 
started to decay towards the beginning of May, what happened is that because of all the microbial action, there's a lot of respiration going on that sucked up oxygen from the water. So the levels got so low that it got into this gray zone here. And that's the zone where oxygen levels are so low that they can be harmful to marine life. And in fact, at one point here, oxygen levels reached zero. So that's bad news. So it's no surprise that there were issues, uh, there was harm to marine life. We saw, uh, the, for example, dead sardines along La Jolla shores and big fish kills, and especially in coastal lagoons in enclosed areas, just this problem with reduced oxygen is much more severe. So this photo is from Agua Hedionda Lagoon in Carlsbad. So there were big problems with fish kills, uh, not only fish, but other uh, bottom living invertebrates that essentially were smothered. So let's formalize the different stages of a red tide because it does have a life cycle to itself. So the first phase is the initiation, and this is the formation of it. The organisms that are responsible for the red tide are normally present in this area. So it's not a case of invasive species, but they, uh, it says here, role of cysts, that cysts are a dormant phase of the life cycle of dinoflagellates. And it's thought that they are cysts that are residing in the sediment and they form a seed population. When they emerge from the sediment, then they can form swimming cells. And then that leads to the next phase, which is the growth phase. So when conditions are favorable, then the organisms will grow and become more numerous. Then they're carried by currents and tides onto the shoreline. This is the maintenance phase. This is when we tend to see them. And then finally, there's the termination phase. And that's when the organisms run out of nutrients, when their predators grow up and will be eating them, and when they start dying and decomposing. So these are the major phases. Now with the initiation, you may think that maybe there's a sophisticated control room at Scripps with full of, of computers monitored 24 seven. And when a red tide occurs, the alarm bells go off, the lights are flashing, and then the notice goes out. Well, it's not like that at all. We do have instruments that are in the water that can take measurements when a red tide occurs, but there was no early warning system to be able to predict when they're going to occur. So pretty much the way it works is that someone sees a discoloration from the red tide and says, oh, we're having a red tide. And then we have instruments that we can go and look at and see what the measurements are showing. So in this case, for our red tide of 2020, my story starts with an email that I got from my Scripps colleague, Terry Gasterland. This is the beginning of April. She said, we have a red tide in Del Mar. Early morning pre-dawn surfers report the water glows when they paddle. 
So this is before the water looked brown. They noticed that the bioluminescence was brighter than normal. So bioluminescence was serving as an indicator, the brighter it is and the more numerous the organisms. So uh, Terry took a water sample and it showed a lot of these plankton in it. Well, then we had a week of heavy rains and I thought, well, that's the end of this red tide because it's not gonna survive all the rains and it's not favorable conditions for them. But I was surprised that after the rains that then we had the brown water. And it was pretty noticeable. It was as brown as I've ever seen it. So then we got into gear. Uh, my Scripps colleagues took water sample to be able to count the abundance of the organisms. Pretty much, well, you can't count a, a microscope slide like this, but it just it represents just how abundant were these organisms. And there's a plankton camera on the Scripps Pier run by Jules Jaffe and his group. And it takes pictures of individual microscopic plankton. And that's what's shown here. This is a view from the middle of April. And each blob here is an individual cell. And most of these are the red tide organisms. So this is the middle of April. But actually, there is another mooring that's off of Torrey Pines that has what's called an imaging flow cytobot. And it imaged, this is the end of March, it imaged the red tide organisms shown here as these dark blobs that were abundant at the end of March. So it appears that in our local waters, the red tide developed at the end of March and then started moving onshore the beginning of April, somehow survived that week of heavy rains and then uh, grew and developed during the middle of April. The organism responsible is a dinoflagellate called Lingolidinium polyhedra. Some of you may know it as Goniolix, its former name. Dinoflagellate is a common member of the plankton. It's a type of phytoplankton. Lingolidinium is one of our regular red tide organisms. It's responsible for the bright bioluminescence when we have our local red tides. So it's not uncommon that it can form red tides. It's just unexpected because we have no way to predict it. So lingolidinium is microscopic. It's about 35 diameters, 35 microns in diameter. So that means you can fit about 200 of them of those cells on the head of a pin. They're good, very good swimmers. They're photosynthetic. And each cell has a little bit of coloration as seen here. And this coloration acts as sunscreen to protect, this, predict, protect the cells from ultraviolet light damage. When you have massive numbers of cells present, then that's what leads to discoloration of the water. This dinoflagellate also has, it's not exactly a shell because it's internal, but it has these plates 
that are called theca. And these are composed of cellulose-like material, and it gives rigidity to the cell. So this organism, the dinoflagellate lingodinium, which I'm going to call it from now on, I'm just going to call it the red-tide dinoflagellate. Easier to say. So we've known that it's formed red tides here for a while. Scripps scientists have been monitoring red tides of this dinoflagellate for more than a century. The first one reported 1902. And so in, in recent past, we've had red tides. We had a short one in 2019. We had one in 2018 that lasted less than a week. We 2011, we had a red tide that lasted a month, and developed over a couple months. And then 1995, 96, 97, those were very nice red tides. So if we look at the major red tides that we've had recently, it would be for these years. So let's put this 2020 red tide in context. How strong was it compared to these other recent red tides? So if we look at the abundance of the red tide dinoflagellate, 2020, it reached a maximum abundance of 9 million cells per liter. And that's higher than the next high. The next highest was 1997, 6 million cells per liter. And the other red tide events were about 1 million cells per liter. So this red tide was the strongest red tide in at least 25 years. And we'll have to see what the data show, but it could be the strongest red tide in recorded history for this area. So this was, this was a big event. It was not only local to San Diego, San Diego, but it also extended up into Orange County and the Los Angeles area. Actually, the news uh, hit in Orange County where there was very bright bioluminescence. And here are some samples collected from the Los Angeles area, very brown water from Manhattan Beach area and Marina del Rey. So it extended all the way up into the Los Angeles area. And then it also extended south. So this is a satellite view of not the red tide, but of chlorophyll A that is in the surface waters of the ocean. So chlorophyll is contained in photosynthetic plankton. So when the plankton is, are abundant, like are the red tide dinoflagellate, essentially this gives you the signal of where are the hot spots for the red tide. So the areas along the coast that are red are the hottest areas, and that extends all the way up into Los Angeles. So it stops there. It doesn't extend further north than Los Angeles, which is about the northernmost limit for the red tide dinoflagellate. And we know that it extended south into Baja, California, based on reports from colleagues in Mexico. And it appears that there was also a red tide in Acapulco in Mexico. So if it extended from Los Angeles all the way down into Acapulco, that covers a coastal extent of 1,600 miles. 
So that's very impressive. That's huge. Also at this time, we had above normal rainfall. And so there's a question of, well, maybe the rainfall fueled the growth of the red tide from all the nutrients washing into the ocean at that time. Now, we know that the red tide started before the heavy rains because it initiated the end of March before the heavy rains in April. But maybe the nutrients from the runoff helped the red tide grow. That's an open question, and we'll just have to see what the, the measurements show in terms of being better able to answer that. So I mentioned cysts. So the red tide dinoflagellate is able to form cysts. And here's a cell that has thrown off the outer cell coverings here. And this smooth-walled cell here is the cyst. So it's a dormant stage. It doesn't swim. It sinks out of, of the water and into the sediment. And then it can reemerge later when conditions are favorable. And there can also be an internal clock that it can emerge much later, even like a year later. So if I were going to make any predictions, I would say, well, maybe a year from now, we will have a follow-up event, maybe not as strong as this year, but maybe there's a, a yearly cycle where these cysts may emerge from the water column to form a new red tide. The cysts are very important for as a mechanism to reseed populations of swimming cells later on. I mentioned predators of the red tide dinoflagellate. So this is one predator. It's another dinoflagellate. It's called protoperidinium, and it is also bioluminescent, but it is not photosynthetic. It eats. It eats essentially whatever it can capture, and it loves to eat the red tide dinoflagellate. <clears throat> so here's the predator, protoperidinium. It's captured the red tide dinoflagellate, it's actually enclosed it in this feeding membrane, and it's extracting the nutrients from the prey, and then it's just going to cast that out. Now, another predator of the red tide dinoflagellate that we've seen in the past is an, a dinoflagellate called Noctiluca. This is a very large dinoflagellate, one of the largest known, could be up to a millimeter in size. And it's a voracious predator. Essentially, it'll eat whatever it can capture. It's a single cell. So it'll snare prey on this appendage here, which is called a tentacle, which is sticky. And then it will engulf it inside the cell. Now, in this case, for this red tide, we did not see that Noctiluca uh, became abundant. But down in Mexico, this is from the Ensenada region. There was a follow-up bloom of Noctiluca. You'll notice its color is much more red than for the red tide dinoflagellate red tide. So this is a, a follow-up red tide to the original red tide. And the, this is caused by Noctiluca, which has been feeding on the red tide dinoflagellate. But we, we have had occasions where we have had 
red tide of Noctiluca in the past. And this was from a really nice one in 1995. This aerial photo was taken by my Scripps colleague, Peter Franks. And it shows the, this orange area is due to Noctiluca, the predator dinoflagellate that had feasted on the red tide dinoflagellate lingodinium becoming abundant. Just for scale, this white object here is a 16-foot Boston whaler. So we can have predators of the red tide dinoflagellate themselves causing a follow-up red tide. So red tides are a subset of what are called harmful algal blooms. And not all harmful algal blooms discolor the water like this, like we have. So they're not necessarily called red tides. But so this, this map shows harmful algal blooms at the top from 1970. And these are harmful algal blooms in which the organism produces a chemical that accumulates in shellfish and can act as a toxin when we eat the shellfish. So the bottom map here shows the incidence of these harmful events in 2000, 30 years later. So there is an increased occurrence of these harmful events. So the question is, is this caused by human impacts or is this something about nature? Is it due to effects of climate change? Sort of due to effects of maybe more nutrient inputs into the into the water, fueling eutrophication and more algal blooms in general. So I just want to point out that in general there is an increased occurrence of harmful events, including red tides. Now, one feature that is important, at least to the formation of red tides in our local red tide dinoflagellate is that the water column is stratified. What I mean that it's stratified by temperature. So the surface of the water here is warmer. So the red indicates warmer temperatures than deeper down. So the blue is cooler. And this favors the growth of phytoplankton such as dinoflagellates because the surface water, which is sunlit, that's where all the photosynthesis goes on. Phytoplankton require nutrients in order to perform photosynthesis and grow. Well, all the nutrients in the surface get depleted. And so meanwhile, the nutrients are still found deeper down below this zone here. This is the thermocline. This is where there's a density gradient between the warmer upper water, which is less dense, and the denser, cooler water beneath. So phytoplankton, most phytoplankton that do not swim are unable to traverse that thermocline. But our red tide dinoflagellate is a good swimmer. It could swim through this layer and then take up nutrients here. So it gives them an advantage when the water is stratified by temperature like this. This occurs when conditions tend to be calm. And we, it is known that during this red tide event, there were lighter offshore winds than are typical. So this increased stratification can play a part in the 
favorable conditions for the, the red tide dinoflagellate. So as the climate of the planet warms, then this upper layer will become warmer. The bottom layer is still cool. It's not warmed by the sun, but there's an increased uh, stratification here, stronger thermocline, and that's not only harder for organisms to swim through to get nutrients down below, but it also inhibits mixing of the, the water column by winds. So that's one effect of a warming planet. Certainly, during this year, conditions were warm. So this graph is uh, shows the temperature variations at measured at the Scripps Pier since 1916. So this is an exceptional data set that involves the manual shore station program at Scripps. And essentially, Scripps scientists, also uh, Birch Aquarium, Aquarius help with this too, go out on the pier and take a bucket sample of water and measure the temperature. This has been going on continuously from 1916, so it's a very valuable data set. So what we see here is that there is a seasonal cycle. So this dashed line in the middle is a long-term average showing warming in the summer, followed by cooling in the fall. The gray here, this range, shows the total extremes in temperature for each date going from January to the next January. And so there's a pretty large variation. The blue shows the temperature record for this year. And it's higher, starting higher than the long-term average. But then the end, middle of April to May, it got very warm. In fact, as indicated by these red dots here, these were record temperatures warmest ever measured at the Scripps Pier since 1916 on those dates. So this year so far was a very warm year, and that may have played a role in the growth and development of the red tide. So uh, you may remember Al Gore, Al Gore talking about an inconvenient truth. Well, he said, talked about the other CO2 problem, that yes, there's an increase levels of CO2 in our atmosphere. The other CO2 problem is that this CO2 dissolves in the ocean. So this is a record of, temp of carbon dioxide measurements from the atmosphere started in the 1950s by Scripps geochemist Charles Keeling and now carried out by his son, Ralph Keeling. So this is continuous measurements since the 1950s continuing to today, showing very large increase in carbon dioxide accumulating in the atmosphere. So uh, 
part of this carbon dioxide dissolves in the ocean. And as carbon dioxide dissolves, it sheds protons or hydrogen ions, forms carbonic acid. So essentially, when carbon dioxide dissolves in ocean water, it makes the water more acidic. And that can cause problems with marine life. So this is a record of pH measurements at the Scripps Pier taken by my Scripps colleagues. This is part of an exceptional program looking at pH in our local waters as part of a project on ocean acidification. So this blue line here represents the long-term average of about pH of 8.1, which is typical for seawater. And then notice here, when the red tide developed, the pH increased. So there's a lot of photosynthesis going on, and that probably explains the increase in pH. But then when we get to this point here, pH drops. In fact, at the, at the minimum, it dropped one whole unit, reached a low of pH of 7.1. So this is extremely harmful to marine organisms that need the proper chemistry to, for example, form shells or other hard structures. And so this can be very deleterious. But the reason I present this is because it's an excellent demonstration of how increasing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are changing the pH of the ocean. In this case, the pH decreased because of all of the carbon dioxide produced by respiration, by microbial activity as the red tide was decaying. There's actually a wide diversity of marine organisms that produce bioluminescence. So I've mentioned the dinoflagellates, but there's many others that produce it. And for example, there are zooplankton. This here in the upper middle is a deep sea crustacean, a type of copepod. It spews out bioluminescence from pores along its body to protect itself when disturbed by predators. This is a worm, a type of, it's a deep sea polychaete, and it, some of them have what are called green bombers. They have these little, these organ, external organs that they can produce bioluminescence from. In the middle here, this green worm is a, a different, a polychaete worm that lives locally. It can be found in Mission Bay, and it uses bioluminescence for mating, attracting mates. So the normally they live in parchment tubes on the bottom. And in certain times of the year, like in the summer months, the females will swim up from the tubes and they'll actually spawn out their gametes, the eggs, in this glowing mucus. Well, the males have big eyes. They see the bioluminescence and they swim up to that, the, the, where the eggs are, and then they fertilize them. So it's all done externally. So there, the bioluminescence serves as a mating cue. 
Certainly, you may know about anglerfish. They have they culture bacteria in this organ that is glowing and attracts prey to them. So they're ambush predators. They wait for prey to come in, attracted by this dim glowing. And then notice a big mouth here, upward looking eyes. So when the prey come here, then they strike very quickly to attack the prey. The bottom left here shows the ventral surface. So it's a bottom view of a squid that lives not in the deep sea where it's dark, but in the mid, mid depths where there's a little, very dim light during the day. It produces bioluminescence for camouflage. So all these white dots here are actually light producing organs called photophores produce light, dim light to, kind of, to disrupt the silhouette of the organism so that it kind of blends in to this dim downwelling light filtering through the water. So that squid, and there's some fish that do it and shrimp that do it, they use bioluminescence for camouflage. And here on the right, this is a brittle star that produces bioluminescence to protect itself from predators. And then here at the bottom in the middle, these are called flashlight fish. They are fish that have this organ beneath the eye. They are culturing bacteria and they use the light produced by the bacteria like a flashlight. They come out when it's dark at night and search on the reefs for food. So there's different functions, generally to attract or find food, to find mates, or to defend yourself against predators. Those are the three main functions of bioluminescence. In all cases, the light is produced from a chemical reaction. So there is a chemical called luciferin, and it is oxidized. So it releases energy. This oxidation re reaction is catalyzed by a protein, which is called luciferase. And this is done in the presence of oxygen or molecular forms of oxygen. And so the luciferin is oxidized, releases energy, and all of this energy comes out as visible light. So we can call bioluminescence cold light because there's no energy lost as heat. The light, the color of the light is generally blue-green. That is the color of light that transmits best through ocean water. But there are cases where the bioluminescence can be yellow and even red. So you can kind of think of it almost like glow sticks, that it's chemistry producing the light. In glow sticks, you have two chemicals, and you know how you have to crack the glow stick. So you're mixing the chemicals. One of the chemicals is oxidized, releases light that is then seen. And the color of the light is determined by the chemistry. So it's the same way in bioluminescent organisms. It's the chemistry that is in a living cell. So in the case of bioluminescent dinoflagellates, the light comes from multiple sources within the cell. So here is a close-up view of individual dinoflagellate cells. This is not our red-tie dinoflagellate. 
but these are other larger dinoflagellates so we can visualize it easier. And these images are taken by my artist colleague, Ivan Ku, who is the person we collaborated on for the Infinity Cube exhibit that was at the Birch Aquarium. So there are all these little individual sources within the cell. So that's where the chemistry occurs. And I'll show you this video that Yvonne took. So it shows the dinoflagellate cells lighting up when they experience a force. So in this case, there's a flow producing the force. Here we're seeing it in slow motion. And when the cells encounter a force that's strong enough, then it activates the cell and the chemistry, and then they produce the bioluminescence. And so here we're seeing it slightly higher magnification. Now, if you see a cell with kind of a dark region in the center, like here, that's the nucleus. So the light is coming from the, or the sources all around the nucleus, but not, does not come from the nucleus. So this is exceptional because uh, Yvonne's footage, the, these are all unrestrained cells at high magnification. Uh, it's really beautifully done. So what's the function of dinoflagellate bioluminescence? So let's consider this scenario. Let's say we are by the Scripps Pier, and it's nighttime, and there are dinoflagellate cells just scattered around in the water. Well, this organism here represents zooplankton predator of the dinoflagellate. So it doesn't actually see the dinoflagellates to eat them. It swims around hoping to bump into one, grab it, and eat it. And then this fish here represents the predator of the zooplankton, but it's dark. It can't see the zooplankton to be able to find it, to eat it. So this is under the cover of darkness. So the, the zooplankton swimming around, bumps into dinoflagellate, grabs it. The force of that grabbing then stimulates the flash of light from the dinoflagellate. That flash of light, which lasts about a tenth of a second, is enough to attract the fish predator of the zooplankton. So what does zooplankton do when they see this flash of light? They jump. They stop feeding, they jump, and they try to swim away because the zooplankton that don't do that are then more likely to be eaten by their predators. So you can think of the dinoflagellate flash as a burglar alarm. In this case, the burglar is the zooplankton predator of the dinoflagellate, and the police is this visual fish predator that in this case would love to eat the burglar zooplankton if it could see it. So that burglar alarm relationship reinforces the importance of the dinoflagellate flash as protecting it from its predators. But when there's large numbers of dinoflagellates in the water, it's like a minefield that any movement is going to trigger the light. And that's shown in this video that here are some lobsters uh, moving around. The flicking of the antenna is sufficient to stimulate the bioluminescence. Here's 
uh, shrimp given away by its motion, uh, stimulating dinoflagellates around it. Here comes a squid predator attracted to the light and strikes and gets the shrimp. So the shrimp was more vulnerable to its squid predator because its motion gave away its position to the predator. So really any movement through the water is gonna stimulate bioluminescence. And this is spectacular. The, this is taken by a whale watching group off of Newport Beach. They went out in the red tide and they saw dolphins stimulating bioluminescence. So of course the dolphins aren't bioluminescent, but they're stimulating the dinoflagellates as they swim. And so they're lighting up the water around them from the force of the water as it creates a friction along their bodies and as the water streams off the body. So this is incredible footage. In fact, this video went viral when it appeared. I went into a PhD program at UC Santa Barbara. So my advisor was Jim Case, and it turns out that he had studied fireflies in places like Malaysia, where male fireflies congregate in mangrove trees along the rivers, and they synchronize. So the males flash in synchrony to attract females, which are far and few between. So he had studied bioluminescence, and there were some other bioluminescent projects in the lab. But when I came there, I actually had an idea of what I wanted to study. And within two weeks, I started working on it and didn't work out. So that was obvious. So I had a big problem. I had to find a research project for my dissertation and find it kind of quickly. So I was doing a reading and I came across this article in a book written by this Japanese scientist who is an expert on ocean shrimps. And it had this really, these interesting photos of this ocean shrimp. And the shrimp is mostly transparent, but it has, this is the stomach here. This is part of the liver called a hepatopancreas. And you notice this black line here. Well, it had this black line that's thought to be a bioluminescent organ. And when the shrimp was tilted, the organ tilted. You notice how the black line stays horizontal. It doesn't tilt with the shrimp. And so long story short, uh, I was able to obtain the shrimp from local waters of Santa Barbara. It wasn't easy because they are deep living. They live about 1,000 feet or 300 meters during the day. So we'd actually have to go out at night in a small boat about, 20, about 10 miles offshore to collect these shrimp, and I'd frantically study them before they would die, which would be like in a week. So it was really challenging, but I showed that they used their bioluminescence, which came from those organs. They used the bioluminescence for camouflage. So it was a very rewarding uh, project for my PhD studies. So imagine that here's the shrimp silhouetted against the surface, 
and it uses the bioluminescence from these organs to partially fill in its silhouette so that it's less likely to be seen by its predators below them that are looking up scanning for the silhouettes of these shrimp. So it's used for camouflage. So I was very indebted to this Japanese scientist. And years later, I had the opportunity to meet him at a scientific conference. And I thanked him. And he told me about a problem he had. So he was a scientific advisor for a local fisheries in one part of Japan where they catch a shrimp that is used for, it's called Sakura Ebi. And it's dried and uses toppings, flavorings for dishes. This shrimp was, was described in 1917 as being bioluminescent. And Mac Omori had studied, he had done his PhD research on this shrimp. He was never able to demonstrate that it was bioluminescent, despite this early report. So he invited me out to come to Japan. And so turns out that this shrimp is very closely related to the shrimp I had done my PhD research on. So I used all the tricks that I'd used on my for my studies. I applied them to this shrimp. We went out in a boat at night, collected them, and were able to demonstrate that, yes, it was bioluminescence. And it looks like that they use their bioluminescence for swarming. These shrimp form swarms in shallow water at night. They descend up from the depths near the surface to feed. And they looks like they use their bioluminescence for swarming, for schooling. So I felt very indebted to Mac that he had helped me out when I was a struggling PhD student. And then years later, I could come and help him with his own studies. So... I did some really interesting work going out on ships and doing on the left here, deep sea trawling, where we studied really exotic deep sea animals, also going down in a research submarine. This is the Johnson Sea Link and being able to capture and study animals in their native environment. Worked on really exotic animals like anglerfish. So worked on them live. Vampire toothus. Vampire squid from hell, which has a bioluminescent organ. The, this is a black loose jaw, the bottom left. And it produces bioluminescence, but there's an organ right on the cheek here below the eye. It produces red bioluminescence. It's using its light as a, essentially as a flashlight, but marine animals can't see red light. But this fish can, has special photoreceptors in its eye so essentially, it's producing red light that can be used uh, near as a near-field flashlight to look for prey. And then this is a squid here that uses bioluminescence for camouflage. So really unusual exotic animals that I had an opportunity to study, work with live on board ship with my colleagues. Can't bring these back to a land-based laboratory because they die very quickly. So then I came to Scripps in 1991, and just a few years later, I experienced my first red tide. This is 1995, produced by the same uh, red tide dinoflagellate as for our red tide, and we had brown water and spectacular bioluminescence. But we didn't have this big problem with water quality and the fish kills. And so really nice bioluminescence 
in the breaking waves at night. What's interesting is that during this red tide, there's the America's Cup, and the, the sailboats were racing offshore Point Loma. And here, you'll, you'll notice they are leaving a trail as they go through the water. So here are patches. So the red tide isn't continuous. It's in patches, and it's very near the surface, which explains why they can leave this trail through it. In coming to Scripps, it was kind of historic in a way, too, because one of my mentors at UC Santa Barbara was Beatrice Sweeney. Obizi studied dinoflagellates. She was, uh, before she was a professor at UC Santa Barbara, she was a researcher at Scripps. And she established some of the first culture, laboratory cultures of bioluminescent dinoflagellates. So she trained me when I was at UC Santa Barbara how to work with dinoflagellates. And now I came to Scripps and I could, in a way, carry on her legacy with her bioluminescence research in the 1950s and 60s while she was here. So we can do a very simple demonstration in the laboratory. The nice thing about culturing them is that we don't have to go out and grab them, collect them from the ocean. We can grow them in the lab and then work with them for our experiments. So here yeah, we're studying no, like that. the oh, we're studying the swirling, the dinoflagellates, and stimulating the bioluminescence. So in my own research, we've looked at this process. How does this agitation of the water, how does the force acting on the cell activate proteins within the cell, part of this uh, signaling pathway that results in the flash of light? The other thing that I've gotten interested in is these so-called bioluminescent bays in the Caribbean. So locally, we have these red tides, but we can't predict when they're going to occur, how long they're going to last. But in the Caribbean, there are coastal bays that essentially have bioluminescence that persists throughout the year and is really spectacular. In fact, they're a big tourist draw, so you can go, well, when it's safe to travel, I guess, you go down to the Caribbean and go visit one of these bays and kayak in it and see the bioluminescence under very nice, warm, inviting conditions. So there's a, there's a number of bays in Puerto Rico, St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, North Shore of Jamaica, Grand Cayman Island. And the first bioluminescent described was outside of the city of Nassau, New Providence Island in the Bahamas. This was described in the mid-1800s. So that was the first bioluminescent bay known. But these are all due to the same dinoflagellate. It's a different, it's a tropical dinoflagellate, so it's different from the ones that we have here locally, but they're very similar ecologically. And you just get spectacular displays of bioluminescence. So one last thing I want to point out about these bioluminescent bays of the Caribbean, they're pretty small. There's only a handful. It's a total of only about five square kilometers in total area. So these are very rare and unique ecosystems. There's a lot of science to be done. Why is the dinoflagellate persists throughout the year? Why is, doesn't it run out of nutrients? Why don't, doesn't its predators come and eat it? Just to put that five kilom square kilometers in context, there's more than 22,000 square kilometers of coral reefs in the Caribbean. So these really are 
ecological gems, these Caribbean bioluminescent bays. I am extremely lucky to have ended up at Scripps. And here shows where my lab location is. And right on the beach, view of the Scripps Pier. This is a fantastic place to work. It's a very large research community. I hope you got a feel for how we all work together. Marine science is highly collaborative because one group, one person cannot do everything. So we work together, and from that, we can tackle big subjects. So that's, that's my story. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.